please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We'll be reading verses 13 through 43. Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 43. I should say um, ahead of time, this will not be an exposition of Acts 13, 13 through 43, but rather a topical sermon. Uh, That's a bit unusual for us, uh, but uh, we will be considering the topic of the gospel uh, this morning. Acts 13, 13 through 43 will be the scripture reading. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about four hundred and fifty years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is coming one of whom the sandals, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, 
that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This now the reading of God's most holy word. May He bless the preaching of His word this morning. As you can see, we have taken a little break from our study of the book of Exodus, and and this break will not last long. Uh, We will return to Exodus next Sunday, Lord willing, and I do hope that the sermon today will help to propel us forward through the chapters that remain in the book of Exodus. The title of the sermon today is this, What is the Gospel? And I decided to preach this sermon for four reasons. One, I wish to clearly communicate the gospel message, knowing that there may be some in our midst who have not yet heard the gospel. That would, of course, be surprising to me if a person's been attending here for any length of time, for the gospel is indeed proclaimed every Lord's Day as we make our way through various texts of Scripture. But today I will proclaim the gospel in a very direct way, and perhaps the Lord would be pleased to to use this gospel presentation to draw someone to salvation through faith in Christ. Two, it is not only those who do not have faith in Christ who need to hear the gospel, but Christians too. Have you ever thought of this? The gospel is not just something that's to be proclaimed to the non-believing world. The gospel also needs to be proclaimed to the church. Those who have heard the gospel before and have believed it to the saving of their souls need to hear the gospel message again and again. It is good for us to be reminded of what God has done for us. It is good for us to reflect upon gospel truth so that we might grow in our appreciation for what God has done. Indeed, as we contemplate the gospel together, our love and gratitude towards God and Christ should increase. Three, I wish to clearly communicate the gospel message to you today so that you, Christian, might know how to do the same. Granted, not all Christians are called and gifted to preach and teach in the church, and not all are called and gifted to minister the word out in the world as evangelists, strictly speaking. But all Christians are called to be, a, to be ready, to give a reason for the hope that is in them. And what is the reason for the hope that is in us except the gospel of Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, If someone were to ask you the question, what is the gospel? Or, if you had the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, would you know what to say? Would you know what to say? I do trust that the majority of you know the Bible well. I know that you understand uh, the teaching of Holy Scripture, or at least I, I hope that you do. But if you are not prepared to clearly and succinctly Present the gospel when the opportunity arises. You will likely allow the opportunity to pass you by. Today I hope to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to you clearly and relatively succinctly as an example so that you might be ready to give a a reason for the hope that is in you. 
Fourthly, I wish to clearly communicate the gospel to you today to prepare us for the remainder of our study of the book of Exodus. Chapters 35 through 39 of the book of Exodus describe the building of the tabernacle. Chapter 40 describes the glory of God filling the tabernacle. I've already warned you that these chapters are repetitive. Uh, Detailed instructions for the building of the tabernacle were, were given to Moses on the mountain, and these are recorded for us in Exodus chapters 25 through 31, which we have already considered. Now here in Exodus 35 through 39, the building of the tabernacle according to the design of Moses is described to us. These chapters repeat what was said before, but the repetition is very, very important. As we work our way through the repetition of Exodus 35 through 39, I will take the opportunity to back away from the tedious details of the text to talk about the biblical theology of the tabernacle. And I hope to show you, I hope to show you in these sermons that the tabernacle of the Old Covenant proclaimed the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed through the tabernacle of the Old Covenant. I want to show you that. And I do hope that this sermon today, that is simply asking the question, what is the gospel, will help to propel us through the remainder of the book of Exodus, beginning with our study of chapter 35 next week. And so, today I simply wish to answer this most foundational question, what is the gospel? I'm preaching this sermon for all of you. I'm preaching it for for every member of this church, young and old alike. I will be honest with you, though, I do hope that our young people especially are paying attention You need to hear the gospel. You need to know it for the sake of your own soul. But you also need to be prepared to tell others about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? There are two things that are very foundational that need to be said before we get into the specifics. First of all, you should know that the word gospel simply means good news. That is what the word means. What does the the word gospel mean? It means good news. In fact, the word itself is not uniquely Christian. The Greek word can be used to describe any kind of good news. And one Greek lexicon or dictionary says that the word refers to news that makes one happy, or information that causes one joy, or words that bring smiles, or a message that causes the heart to be sweet. What is the gospel? Well, most fundamentally, the gospel is good news. It is is good news. Our king has won the war and has repelled the invaders is gospel. It is good news. Or your lost son has been found. That also is gospel or good news. In just a moment we will come to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. But before we come to that, do not miss this simple fact. The gospel is news. It is not a way of life. It is not good works. It is an announcement or proclamation. It is a message of joy. Yes, it is true that belief in the gospel will produce a certain way of life. And yes, we are to adorn the gospel with good works, but the gospel is first and foremost a message. It is a message of joy that must be proclaimed. Some of you understand why I am emphasizing this. There are some who wish to say that the gospel is simply a way of life. We must live the gospel. Or the gospel is good works. We must um, 
proclaim good news, uh, not with our lips, but by what we do, it, I say no to all of that. The gospel is most fundamentally news. It is good news. It is a message. It is an announcement or proclamation. The, the second foundational thing that I want you to know is that the gospel is a story. It is a story. In fact, this is true of all forms of good news. It's hard to imagine any kind of good news being received as good news without a backstory. You know, back in the olden days, before the invention of the internet, phones, the telegraph, and even the printing press, the news would be spread from town to town by heralds or criers. Have you ever heard of these? A, a herald or a, or a crier? If a king had a message to spread, he would send out his heralds or his messengers. And so I want you to use your imagination here. Imagine a herald standing in the middle of the town square saying to the, to the citizens of that land, I have good news for you. I have good news to proclaim. The king has won the war. I think you would agree with me that that proclamation of good news would only be received as good news by the citizens of that town if it were set against the backdrop of bad news. The announcement, the king has won the war, would not cause the citizens to rejoice unless they knew there was a war. In fact, that announcement, the king has won the war, would only bring confusion unless the people knew of a war. Without the backstory, the proclamation of good news would not make any sense. Instead of rejoicing, the citizens would look at the herald and, and they would have a look of confusion or bewilderment on their faces. They, they would think to themselves, wait, what, what did you say? The king has won the war? What war are you speaking of? We did not know that there was a war. But if the citizens of that town were first told the bad news that an enemy was approaching and was threatening the nation their homes and their families. And if the citizens were carrying within them the angst regarding that threat, then the news, the king has won the war, would not bewilder them, but would immediately cause them to rejoice. They would see it as good news, indeed great news, and all would erupt in celebration. You see, for this reason I have said the gospel is a story. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a simple announcement or a simple proclamation. It is, in fact, a story. It is a story that begins with bad news. The good news of Jesus Christ can only be appreciated as good news when it is delivered to someone as a story. To approach a stranger on the streets and to say to them, Jesus loves you is not the gospel. Or to say to them, Jesus died for sinners and the forgiveness of sins is available to all who have faith in Him. Though much better than the simple statement, Jesus loves you, is not really the gospel either. For you have not told the story. Do not be surprised, especially in our day and age when so many are ignorant of the basic teachings of the Bible. When that person looks at you with confusion on their face, what have you said to them? Uh, Jesus died for sinners and the forgiveness of sins is available to all who have faith in Him. I mean, that's a, that's a good message there. That's much better than just simply saying Jesus loves you. But think of what will be going on in their mind and heart. If they have no understanding of the Bible, which many in our day and age do not, they will probably look at you with confusion on their face. Jesus? 
Who is he? You say that he died? Why did he do that? What do you mean by sinners? Are you suggesting that I'm one of those? A sinner? Are you saying that I need forgiveness? Etc., etc. A very simple uh, proclamation, especially in our day and age, concerning what Jesus has done, will likely produce confusion. I am saying to you, uh, brothers and sisters, that the gospel is good news. It is a message. It is a proclamation. Uh, But it is also a story. A story needs to be told. So then we begin with these two truths. The gospel is good news. It is a joyous announcement or proclamation. Two, if the good news of the gospel is to be received as good news, a story must be told. The good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ can only be comprehended if the story of redemption that is told in the Bible is understood to one degree or another. In the remainder of the sermon today, I wish to tell you that story. I will tell it in four parts. And I want you to memorize these parts. The story of the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is the story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Repeat those words after me. The story of the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is the story of creation, Creation. fall, Fall. redemption, Redemption. and consummation. consummation. Let's consider creation. If we wish to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly, then we must begin where the Bible begins. And that is with the story of creation. The very first verse of the Bible says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So then, there is God and there is His creation. Everything that exists falls into these two categories, God and creation, creator and creature. The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be understood or believed apart from this foundational truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. There's so much to say about God. What is His nature? What are His attributes? How does He relate to this world He has made? Indeed, the rest of the Scriptures from Genesis 1-1 onward reveal God to us. In the Scriptures, we learn that there is only one God. We learn that He is a Spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. Those of you who are familiar with our catechism know that I have just cited Baptist Catechism questions 7, 8, and 9. These truths about God are essential truths. In fact, I would argue that a person cannot be saved without believing these foundational truths about God. But I have a question for you. Must we proclaim these truths about God, truths about His nature, His attributes, His triunity, every time we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? I don't think so. Much of this can be reserved for later, should a person desire to know more. Did you hear in that text that I read from the book of Acts how Paul proclaimed a relatively simple message to the people, to his audience? They were Jews and God-fearers. He told a story. And what did they ask? Some of them, at least, begged that he would return so that more could be said the next uh, Sabbath day. And, of course, when we proclaim the gospel, we can't say it all. We could only say a little bit. But what is our hope? 
that we would say enough and that we would say it clearly enough so that whoever it is that we're conversing with would say, I want to know more. And perhaps it is at that point in further meetings with that individual uh, that more could be said regarding God, His nature, His attributes, His triunity. It does not all have to be said at once. The goal here, though, is to tell the backstory, enough about the backstory, so that the good news regarding salvation in Jesus Christ can be intelligible. So what does a person need to know in order to understand why the news that Jesus died for sins and rose in victory is good news? Well, first of all, they need to know that God exists and that in the beginning He created all things seen and unseen, including mankind. The second thing that must be said about creation is that when God created the heavens and earth, everything was good. In the beginning, the heavenly realm, the earthly realm, and everything within them were good. These realms and the creatures placed within them were upright. They were pure. They were without defect. Everything was as it should be. No sin, no sickness, no death. Everything that was brought into being by the Word of God was good. Indeed, it was very good. And the narrative of Genesis chapter 1 stresses this point. It makes it very clear. The insistence that everything was good and indeed very good is stressed in Genesis chapter 1. The third thing that should be said about creation is this. After God created the man, Adam, He placed him in a special garden. That garden was a temple For there man enjoyed communion with God. And in that garden, God entered into a covenant of works with man. I'm afraid that this fact is often forgotten in our presentations of the gospel. But I think you would agree with me that it is a very important part of the story. One cannot really understand man's fall into sin, nor redemption in Jesus Christ, nor the idea of consummation apart from the covenant of works that was made with Adam in the garden. Now please do not misunderstand me. I am well aware of the fact that your time with a person might be very, very limited. And so you may need to present the gospel of Jesus Christ very quickly. When that is the case, I would not fault you at all for skipping over this detail or that in the hopes that you will have an opportunity to say more later. But if possible, do not forget to talk about the garden. Do not forget to talk about the covenant of works that was made with Adam there. It is an important part of the backstory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. After God created Adam and Eve, He entered into a covenant with them. He made an agreement with them, as it were. He, he gave them His law. He established terms and stipulations with this covenant. He even told them what would happen should they break the covenant. Adam was to guard the garden temple that God had placed them in. He was to expand its borders. He and his wife Eve were to fill it with their offspring. This they were to do with love for God in their hearts. They were to worship Him as priests. They were to serve Him as kings on earth. They were to proclaim His word as prophets. But this was a time of testing for them. This was a time of testing. Two things were given to Adam and Eve to signify that this was a time of testing. First of all, they were given the weekly Sabbath. Six days they were to work, and on the seventh day they were to rest. This they were to do in imitation of their Maker, who took six days to create the heavens and earth. He rested on the seventh day as a pattern for them. 
The Sabbath day was and is a sign. It signified God's eternal rest. And it was an invitation to the man and the woman to enter that eternal rest through their faithful work and obedience. Can you see how the presence of the Sabbath day showed that this was a time of testing for Adam and for Eve? Something was offered to them that they did not yet possess, namely eternal rest in the presence of God. And the weekly Sabbath was a sign of that. The second thing given to Adam and Eve to show that they were in a time of testing were two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did the tree of life signify? It symbolized the reward that God would graciously give to Adam and Eve if they passed the test. They would pass from life to life. That is to say, from life in paradise to life in the presence of the glory of God forever and ever. Eternal life. The tree of life was a symbol of this, and its presence in the Garden of Eden was a sign of the time of testing that Adam was under. And what did the tree of the knowledge of good and evil signify? It it signified rebellion and the curse that would come upon the man, the woman, and all of their descendants should they fail to keep the garden temple, to expand its borders, and to fill the earth with worshippers of Yahweh, the one true God, creator of all things, seen and unseen. When we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am telling you, brothers and sisters, we must, to one degree or another, tell this story of creation. For it is the backdrop against which the story of our fall into sin, our redemption in Christ, and the consummation of all things is set I'm not claiming that you need to go into the detail that I have just gone into now, but you need to have this detail in your mind and heart, do you not? So that you can summarize it for others, so that you could say to them, I have good news to tell you. But first I must set the stage. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that is, is because God has made it. There is God and there is creation. And when He made the heavens and the earth, It was all good. It was all upright. It was all pure. But God did enter into a covenant with man, a covenant of works. It was a time of testing. Man was to obey God. If he obeyed God, he would enter into eternal life. If he did so obey God, he would enter into a state of death and earn for himself eternal condemnation. Now that we have discussed the creation, let us move on to the subject of man's fall into sin. This here is the bad news which makes the good news so good. Christ came to solve a problem. He came to defeat an enemy. He came to rescue captives, restore what was lost, and finish a work that was left undone. If people are to understand this good news of Jesus Christ, they must first know something about the problem, the enemy, the bondage, the loss, and the unfinished work. It is this very bad news of man's fall into sin that makes the good news of man's salvation in Christ Jesus comprehensible. So what needs to be said regarding man's fall into sin? Two things. One, the fact of the fall ought to be proclaimed. And two, the effects of the fall ought to be explained. The story of the temptation of man and of Adam's rebellion against God is told in Genesis chapter 3. I trust that you know that story very well. A rebel from the heavenly realm, 
approached Eve on earth in the form of a serpent and tempted her. And Eve, in turn, tempted her husband, Adam. The serpent claimed that God's word was not true, that God was holding out on them, and that they could be enlightened and empowered if only they would eat of the forbidden tree, the tree which God said, you shall not eat of it. That is to say, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By the way, the evil one utters the same kind of lies even to this present day, doesn't he? He tells us that God's word is not true, uh, that we ought to live not for God but for ourselves and go our own way. Adam sinned against God when he listened to the word of the intruder instead of the word of God. With evil rebellion, discontentment, and pride in his heart, he took fruit from the forbidden tree and he ate of it. As I have said, this story is told in Genesis chapter 3. And the doctrinal truths concerning man's fall into sin are summarized for us beautifully in questions 16 through 18 of our catechism. Question 16. Did our first parents continue in the estate wherein they were created? That is to say, in that good and upright state of being. Answer. Our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. Question 17. What is sin? Answer, sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Question 18, what is the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created? Answer, the sin whereby our first parents fell from the estate wherein they were created was their eating of the forbidden fruit. So the story of man's fall into sin is told to us in Genesis chapter 3, The great doctrinal truths concerning man's fall into sin are summarized for us in questions 16 through 18 of our catechism. Now, what were the effects of Adam's sin? Truthfully, a lot could be said about this. The effects were truly devastating. I will present them very briefly under three headings. One, the curses of the covenant of works fell upon Adam and Eve. We know that the wages of sin is death. So Adam and Eve passed into a state of death. This means that they did eventually physically die. But even more importantly, they entered into a state of spiritual death. This means that they were alienated from God. This means that God's wrath was upon them. They were children of wrath. This means that they themselves were totally Depraved, meaning that everything about them was now given over to darkness and, and to corruption. They were affected in the body. They were affected in the soul. And as we speak of the soul, we must say that their minds were affected, their emotions were affected, their wills were affected, so that now they found themselves not for God and in an upright state, but against Him in thought, word, and deed. So the curses of the covenant of works fell Upon Adam and Eve, the Lord did warn them, In the day you eat of it, the forbidden tree, you shall surely die. Adam and Eve went on living physically for many, many years. They lived a very long life, in fact, according to the Genesis narrative. But they immediately entered into a state of death. They were sinners. They were dead spiritually before God, alienated from Him, under His wrath, and depraved. Two, 
the blessings promised under the covenant of works were lost. So not only did the curses of the covenant of works fall on them by their disobedience, but also the blessings promised under the covenant of works were lost or forfeited. I have told you that the Lord held out to Adam and Eve the, 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 the hope of eternal Sabbath rest. They would not enter into it, would they? They forfeited it. At least they would not enter into it by the terms of the covenant of works. Uh, held out to them in the tree of life was the promise of eternal life, life and glory. That too was lost. They would not enter into it, nor would their descendants. At least they would not enter into it according to the terms of the covenant of works. Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. That's where their children were born too, not in Eden, but outside of it. And the way to the tree of life and all that it signified was blocked off. They could not enter in to eat of that fruit, the fruit of the tree of life. Uh, that, uh, that tree was a symbolic or sacramental tree. So signified here is the fact that the way to life eternal, the way to eternal rest was now shut off to Adam and to Eve. They could not enter into it by their good works any longer. Three, the guilt of Adam's sin, the loss of original righteousness, and the curses of the covenant were transmitted to all of Adam's descendants, that is to say, to all of humanity, for Adam was the head or representative of humanity. So we need to tell people about the fact of the fall, just as Genesis 3 does. We must also tell them of the effects of the fall. The curses of the covenant fell on Adam and Eve. Also, Adam and Eve lost the blessings of the covenant that were held out to them. They forfeited those. But do not forget to tell people that that all of this, all of these effects did not just fall on Adam and Eve. Indeed, all of these effects fell upon humanity. All who descended from Adam and Eve were then born in this fallen condition, this fallen state. We are by nature children of wrath, the Scriptures say. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And it is out of this fallen state that we ourselves do then commit actual sins against God. The story of the temptation of man and of man's fall into sin is told in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. The effects of Adam's fall into sin are, are observed in Genesis 3.14 through to the end of Genesis 6. Indeed, the effects of Adam's fall into sin are observable in all of the scriptures from Genesis 3.14 onward. But I do think that Genesis 3.14 through to the end of chapter 6 has this special function to show us the effects of Adam's sin. If you read that narrative, you'll see that names are mentioned to us, the length of their life will be presented to us. And then the scriptures over and over and over again will say, and he died, and he died, and he died. Uh, the message is clear. Here are the effects of Adam's fall into sin. It did not just affect Adam and Eve, but all of humanity descending from him. They're born outside of Eden and they're given over to all manner of corruption so that uh, we see in the Genesis narrative that the corruption on earth, the sin and the wickedness grew exceedingly Great, leading up even to that flood narrative that is so familiar to us. So the story is told in Genesis 3 onward. But the great doctrinal truths regarding the effects of Adam's fall into sin are summarized nicely in Baptist Catechism's 
Baptist Catechism questions 19 through 22. I'd like to read these to you now because I'm able to communicate so much to you in a very short space by reading these questions and answers. Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? Do you hear the question? We know that Adam fell. But now the question is, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? Answer, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, that is to say for all of his descendants, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, that is through the ordinary process of procreation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. So that it was not just Adam who fell, but all humanity fell in Adam. Question 20. Into what estate did the fall bring mankind? When man was created, he was created in an upright and good and, and, and holy state. But what happened to the state of man after Adam's fall into sin? The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. So that all who were born from Adam and Eve to this very day are born in sin and under the curses of that broken covenant of works. Question 20. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein two men fell? Uh, Answer. The sinfulness of that estate wherein two men fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the lack of original righteousness, so we are not born righteous but unrighteous before God, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. So we are born unrighteous before God. We are born corrupt before God. Our our natures are depraved. We're, We're all bent out of shape. This is why everyone who has ever lived, with one exception, sins themselves. They sin out of a corrupt nature, which they have inherited from Adam. Uh, This is called original sin. And then all of our actual transgressions proceed from this, flow out of this. Question 22. What is the misery of that estate wherein two men fell? Answer. All mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under His wrath and curse, And are so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. This is the bad news that must be told. Adam fell and we fell in him. We are born in sin. We are born without righteousness. We are born corrupt and we ourselves do sin. And this is what all of that means for us. According to our natural state, we have no communion with God. We are born under His wrath and curse. We experience miseries in this life. We will ourselves die and we will go to hell forever and ever if not in Christ the Lord. This is the dark backdrop against which the light of the good news of the gospel must be set. Apart from at least a superficial understanding of this backstory of creation and man's fall into sin, the story of our redemption in Christ would be unintelligible. Do you see this, brothers and sisters? You might at this point um, object, saying, Well, you just read to us Acts chapter 13. And clearly you read it to us because um, this is where Paul proclaims the story of the good news of Jesus Christ, and yet he did not say a word about creation nor the fall. 
He told a story, but he began really with Abraham. He didn't say anything about creation or fall, and yet you're saying, Pastor, that we must talk about creation and fall. What do you think my answer to that question or that objection would be? Who was Paul speaking to? He was speaking to Jews, uh, Hebrews according to the flesh, those who knew the Old Testament Scriptures well, who had heard it since childhood, who understood it thoroughly and believed it uh, in the heart. He was speaking to Jews and to God-fearers. And so the story of creation and of man's fall into sin was assumed. And Paul, the apostle, knowing his audience, was able to begin with the promise of the gospel that was entrusted to Abraham. But in our day and age, we cannot assume anything. People need to hear about God and that He has created all things and that He created all things good. They need to hear about God and the covenant that He entered into with man. They need to hear about Adam and Eve and their breaking of that covenant before they could understand anything about Christ the Redeemer. So, the gospel means good news. Would you repeat after me these two words? Good news. And I am saying to you that the gospel is a story. It is a story of creation. It is a story of man's fall into sin. Now we must talk about redemption. Let us consider the work of redemption that Christ has accomplished. To redeem is to buy back. Or if you would prefer, we could talk about the work of salvation. I think those two terms are interchangeable. Salvation Uh, To save is to rescue. Whichever term you prefer, we need to talk about Jesus Christ and the work He has done to rescue sinners from their sin and misery. I'll briefly talk about our redemption under three headings. One, let us ask, what did Christ come to save us from? What did Christ come to save us from? Answer, He came to save us from All of the miseries that came upon the children of Adam when he fell into sin and broke the covenant. Do you see that I hardly need to say anything about redemption now? Because you have the back story. We have a Redeemer. What did He come to redeem us from? We have a Savior. What did He come to save us from? Well, everything that I just told you about as it pertains to the fall of man into sin. He came to rescue us from, from all of that. He came to save us from all of the miseries that came upon the children of Abraham or excuse me, the children of Adam, when he fell into sin and broke the covenant of works. Questions 21 and 22 of our catechism state the matter very well. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell, was the question. The sinfulness of the estate wherein to man fell consists of the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. I read that quickly to you now because I just read it a moment ago. I'm reminding you of of what is so bad about the estate into which man fell. And I am saying to you that Christ has has come to solve this problem here. He's He's come to redeem us from this or to save us. From this sinfulness. Question 22. What is the misery of that estate wherein man fell? All mankind by their fall lost communion with God. Can you see brothers and sisters that Christ came to do something so as to restore the communion of God with God that was lost in the beginning? Are under His wrath and curse. Christ has come to, to 
save us from the wrath and curse of God, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life. He has come to redeem us even from these, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. He has come to rescue sinners from these torments. Brothers and sisters, if we tell the backstory well, then our understanding of the redemption that Christ has worked will become very clear. What did Christ come to save us from? All of that. And two, I might ask, what did Christ come to save us to? Answer, He came to save us so that we might have what was offered to Adam in the beginning, but forfeited by him. He came to pay for our sins so that He might cleanse us, And so that we might live a righteous life, He came to live a righteous life so that He might give us His righteousness. This is so that we might be reconciled to the Father and enter into the eternal Sabbath rest that was offered to Adam but forfeited. Christ came to give us eternal life, of which the tree of life was a symbol. Christ came to bring His people into the eternal and blessed presence of God in His end-time temple, His eternal temple, wherein Heaven and earth will be made one. All of that was offered to Adam in the original covenant of works that was made to him, but it was forfeited. Christ came to save us from the curses of the covenant that fell upon Adam and his children, and Christ came to save us too. The things that were offered to Adam in the covenant of works that were never obtained by him. Three, we might ask the question, how did Christ accomplish this work? Answer, Christ, the eternal Word of God, took to Himself a true human nature. He accomplished our redemption by living an obedient life. He lived in obedience to God's law and He suffered and died in the place of sinners. He endured God's wrath in the place of those given to Him by the Father. He atoned for their sins As He died as their substitute, He rose again on the third day in victory and ascended into heaven as the first fruit and forerunner of all who are united to Him by faith. Here is a thing that I want you to recognize, brothers and sisters. What Christ came to redeem us from, what He came to redeem us to, and the way in which He accomplished our redemption is very much related to the story of creation and to the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden, and to the breaking of that covenant. Christ came to save us from the curses of that covenant. He came to redeem us so that He might bring us into the state of glory that Adam failed to obtain. He accomplished this redemption in the flesh as the God-man, the only mediator between God and man. The Scriptures call Him the second Adam for this reason. Stated differently, Whereas the first Adam broke the covenant that God made with him as head or representative of the human race, the second Adam, Christ the Lord, was faithful to keep the covenant that God made with him as the head or representative of those given to him by the Father. What covenant was this? We know that God entered into a covenant with Adam. It was the covenant of works. We may also call it the covenant of creation or the covenant of life. It was made with Adam in the garden. Garden, The trees were signs of it. So too was the Sabbath day. But what covenant did Christ keep? What covenant did Christ obey so as to earn the blessings of it? It was not the covenant of works that was made with Adam in the garden. But it was the covenant of redemption made between Father and Son in eternity. 
There are many places in the Scriptures where we are given a glimpse into the terms of that covenant. Isaiah 42, 1-7, and Isaiah 50, 4-9, also Luke 4, 17-21 are texts that come to mind. Perhaps the most famous is John 17, where Christ prays to the Father and says things like this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The text goes on as Christ continues to pray to the Father. But in this high priestly prayer of Jesus, we are given insight into the covenant that was made between the Father and the Son before the world was even created. We learn that certain people were given to the Son, that the Son was tasked with accomplishing their redemption, that He was to save them and keep them and bring them safely into the new heavens and new earth. What I am saying to you, brothers and sisters, is that texts like this give us insight into the covenant that was made between Father and Son in eternity. The Son was tasked with coming to earn salvation for those given to Him by the Father. He was to save them from the curses of the covenant that befell the children of Adam under the broken covenant of works. He was to save them to the things that Adam failed to obtain. And what would the Son have to do to accomplish this? What would He have to do? First, He would have to take to Himself a true human nature. In order to redeem humanity, Christ would have to be human. He would humble Himself by being born and that in a low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. That is Baptist Catechism 30. And after this, He would be exalted in victory by His raising again from the dead on the third day and ascending up into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God the Father and in coming to judge the world at the last day. Christ would accomplish the redemption of those given to Him by the Father both in His humiliation and in His exaltation. You see, Christ did not merely keep the terms of the covenant that was made with Adam in the garden. Do you see that? Christ did not merely have to keep God's law. He did keep God's law. He kept His moral law. He even kept all of the laws that were given to Old Covenant Israel in the days of Moses. He kept God's law perfectly, but Christ had to do more than that. Christ did not only have to keep God's law perfectly and perpetually so that He Himself was righteous, Christ also had to come in humility and to suffer in the place of sinners. Adam was never asked to do that, you see. Adam was called to perfectly and perpetually obey God's moral law written on his heart. He was called to expand the the garden temple, to keep it and to fill it. He was called to, after passing the test, eat of the tree of life, yes, Adam was to keep God's law from the heart, but never was Adam called to suffer for sinners, for there was no sin in the world. Christ, the second Adam, had to do more than the first Adam ever was asked to do. He had to keep God's law perfectly and perpetually, while also suffering in the place of sinners. 
He had to suffer in the place of others, die for others. He had to endure the wrath of God in the place of others. And as I have said, no such thing was required of the first Adam. But this was required of the second Adam, for he was sent to rescue fallen and hell-bound sinners. Thanks be to God for the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. Now let me say just a, a word or two about consummation. To proclaim the gospel, it is important for us to speak of creation, fall, and redemption in Christ Jesus. And I would argue that it is also good to speak of the consummation. To consummate is to make a thing complete or final. And here I simply want to stress that though Christ accomplished the redemption of those given to Him by the Father nearly 2,000 years ago, and though the Spirit has been applying the redemption earned by Christ to the elect in every age from Adam's day to the present, the consummation of all things is still in our future. The Scriptures teach that Christ will come again. He will come, as Hebrews 9.28 says, not to deal with sin, that is to say, not to atone for sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. When He comes, He will not atone for sin, for that work has been done, but to bring all who have faith in Him to, into the new heavens and earth which He has earned. He will also judge those not in Him with eternal damnation. I say that it would be good for us to speak of the consummation of all things when we proclaim the gospel because it will help those we share with to fully understand what Christ has come to save us from and to. At the end of time, when Christ returns, He will judge. And yet He has come to save us from this, to save His people from judgment and eternal damnation. When He comes, He will bring His people safely into the new heavens and new earth which He has earned. This is what He has come to save us to. Christ did not come to merely give you a better life on earth. In fact, for many followers of Christ, life on earth is made more difficult, not easier, because of their profession of faith. He came to redeem us so that we might be with Him and in the presence of God's glory forever and ever in the new heavens and earth which He has purchased by His shed blood. And Christ did not merely come to wash away your sins and to renew you inwardly. No, He came to do this so that you might be fit for heaven, so that you might enter into the new heavens and new earth. Stated differently, when we speak of the consummate state, that is, of the second coming of Christ, the final judgment in the new heavens and earth, the story of our redemption in Christ is completed. Notice, Christ will not take His people back to Eden. Thanks be to God, we will not go back to Eden. He will not place them under that covenant of works again, which was a covenant of testing. Thanks be to God, we will not be brought back into the covenant of works, that covenant of testing. And neither will He set before His people the two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No, when Christ returns, He will bring them into the state of rest and glory, of which the weekly Sabbath day and the tree of life are signs. What was offered to the first Adam but lost, the second Adam has won. And this He has done, not for Himself only, but for all who are united to Him by faith. Thanks be to God. 
Creation. Say it with me. Creation. Creation. Fall. Fall. Redemption. Redemption. And consummation. consummation. I'm aware that you will not always have 45 minutes to proclaim the gospel to someone. In fact, you will often have five minutes or less. Brothers and sisters, I want these truths to be in your mind and in your heart. I want you to understand them deeply so that when you have opportunity to give a reason for the hope that is in you, you can find a way to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ succinctly. Tell them the backstory of creation, of man's fall into sin. Tell them that Christ has come to save sinners. If you have the opportunity, tell them about the consummate state, what Christ has saved us from and to, and urge them to turn from their sins, to place their faith in Christ, and to be baptized in the church, wherein they will be taught to observe all that Christ has commanded. We must tell this story, the story of the good news of Jesus Christ, and we must urge sinners to repent, that is to turn from their sins, and to place their faith in Jesus the Messiah. This is the way in which salvation and all of its benefits are received. Just as you receive a gift by putting out your hand and taking that gift to yourself, so too you receive the gift of salvation by the instrument of faith, by believing in Christ in the heart and trusting in Him inwardly. We are to believe in the heart that Christ has come, that He lived and died and rose again for us. And we are to make that profession. We are to say, we believe in Christ. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. Through the waters of baptism, this is what the Scriptures command. And those baptized are to be brought up in the church. They're to be nurtured there. They're to be taught about God's Word. They're to be taught about God, about the Christ that He has provided, about His will for us and all other things. They're to be taught to observe all that Christ has commanded us within the church. This is the mission of the church. We must be, pre- pre- be prepared to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In brief, we must tell sinners that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for the Gospel, for this marvelously good news that has come to us. We thank You for Your mercy, that though we deserve Your wrath, though we deserve eternal condemnation, You have rescued us through the finished work of Christ on the cross. We thank You for Christ, for His humiliation, the way that He suffered in our place, in the whole of life, and especially on the cross. We thank You that He endured Your wrath in our place as He atoned for our sins. We thank You also for His exaltation, that He was placed in the grave, but He did not remain there. He was raised on the third day, and He has ascended to Your right hand. Indeed, He is victorious, and our victory is found in Him. I pray, O God, that You would strengthen the faith of those who believe, and if there are any in our midst today who do not believe, I pray that You would draw them, O God. Give them the gift of faith, I pray. May we be blessed to see them baptized and to fellowship with us in the future, O God. Have mercy on us. Have mercy upon this world, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.